bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 14th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Joyce Bryant, who was born on this day in 1927. She is 93 years old today. Happy birthday, Joyce. So today's episode is definitely the one that took me the longest so far to pick a person. I must have changed my mind like five times. It really came right down to the wire. I kept finding people that were more and more obscure and more and more deserving. And I'm so glad that I listened to my gut, which always tells me that someone better is out there because it brought me to the incredible human in history that we're going to learn about today, Joyce Bryant. So Joyce left a legacy of beauty in her voice. She has an amazing four octave range instrument. She was the first person of color to perform at a number of segregated clubs. She dealt with all the typical crap that a black entertainer had to deal with in the mid 20th century, including the KKK burning her in effigy. But I think what struck me the most, what lit the light bulb above my head that she was the one was that she was essentially the first African-American bombshell. And I know that sounds like a really superficial thing to laud someone for, but I want to talk for a second about why it's really important. If we look at the earliest relationships between Black people and white people, at least in America, Black people were crammed into a singular box, one that was bordered by enslavement and subservience. That was what white people, at least the majority of them at the time, chose to see black people as. They fit into this box. They were chattel, and their entire function was to serve or work in some capacity. The idea that a person of color would have wishes and desires and opinions and an inner life was just something that most white people either didn't believe was possible or didn't want to look at. Because once you begin to honestly think about the fact that you're treating a human as property, unless you're a total sociopath, that has to set off some alarm bells, right? So once enslaved people were emancipated, white people felt they had to create new boxes for people of color who had been let out of the old enslavement boxes. So there were boxes for the black entertainer, and there were boxes for the Uncle Tom, and there were boxes for the big jolly mammy, and there were boxes for the violent out of control black man who justified the KKK's existence. And there were boxes for the step and fetch it character. And there were even boxes for the sexual black woman, but it was always an evil and fetishy type box, not one of sexual empowerment. The idea of black people being sexual beings, beings with gender identity and personal desires and deep relationships wasn't something that the average Reconstruction era white person could wrap their brain around. And again, I'm generalizing here as I'm well aware that there were many white people who did not feel this way, but there were far too many that did. Today, if someone were to ask the question, can a black woman be sexual and powerful, you'd probably be laughed out of the room for asking a question so asininely obvious. African-American women who own their sexuality and their own power are thankfully everywhere now, and they're becoming more and more visible and prevalent. But when Joyce Bryant became the black Marilyn Monroe, as she was called by many, Her other nicknames include the bronze blonde bombshell and the voice she will always remember. She was kind of in uncharted territory. The idea of being a female African-American singer who was also an incredibly beautiful and sexual being who owned that, 
aside from a few fellow pioneers like Josephine Baker and Eartha Kitt, it just wasn't that common. If we look at, let's say, Lena Horne, for example, um, she's beautiful. She is an incredible singer and actress, but her sexual power and her identity had always been toned down just a little bit and sort of made safe for the white audiences that were viewing the films she was in because for much of her youth, she was under the yoke of a restrictive studio contract. Back in our September 18th episode, where we talked about Eddie Anderson, who starred with Lena in the movie Cabin in the Sky, I mentioned that there was a clip in there in which Lena is singing an amazing song while in a bubble bath. And just the idea of a black woman naked in the water was so terrifying to white audiences that the clip was cut from the movie. It's thankfully still available online, so I definitely urge you to look it up. Uh, Lena Horne, the song is called Ain't It the Truth. But aside from like Lena, singers like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and Ethel Waters, who we're going to be covering on Halloween, they were also talented and beautiful, undeniably so, but they did not exude the brazen sexual power that Joyce did. So without further ado, let's learn all about Joyce. So Joyce was born on this day in 1927, as I mentioned, in Oakland, California, to Whitfield and Dorothy Bryant. Dad was a Southern Pacific Railroad chef, and Mom was a hardcore Seventh-day Adventist. In total, there were eight kids in the family, and Joyce has been listed as both the oldest and the third by various sources. This was a very strict religious home run by Dorothy, as Whitfield was often out with other women, and according to one source, quote, was only home long enough to impregnate his wife. I'm hesitant to put a ton of faith in that character sketch, as it came from a pretty negative article about Joyce, the only article which described her as a dining club chanteuse. So the author appears to not be a big fan in general. So none of the other four sources I used mention any of this. So it may just be conjecture on the part of one less than enthusiastic writer. So take that character profile with a, with a grain of salt. But Joyce was, by all accounts, a fairly quiet kid, her goals in life being to go into teaching, specifically teaching sociology. As a teen, a bit of a rebellious streak popped up, and at the age of 14, she ran away from home and eloped. But the marriage was annulled that same night. I couldn't find any more info on who the guy was or how old he was or why it was an old, I'm assuming her parents caught wind of it, but a marriage made at 14 is probably best at being nipped in the bud. The marriage was not consummated, which was probably the biggest concern for her religious parents. This bit of daring do was just a first glimpse into the unfurling of this independent and dynamic woman. So she moves to, or was more than likely sent by her parents, to Los Angeles in 1942 after the annulled marriage debacle to live with some cousins. While she was there, one of her cousins dared her to perform at a nightclub that had these sort of amateur sing-along nights. Being the daredevil that she was, she began to sing along with everyone. Pretty soon, everyone else had stopped singing and was just listening to her. The manager walks up and he says, I'll give you 25 bucks if you get up on stage and sing for everyone. She actually needed the money so she could catch a cab back home. So she climbs on stage and she belts out on top of old Smokey. The manager offers her $125 a week for the next two weeks. That's about $1,700 a week in today's money. And her career is off like a rocket. She starts to sing across the U.S. She gets gigs ranging from... $400 a week at La Martinique, which was this little basement turned nightclub in New York known for launching the careers of Danny Kaye and Zero Mostel, to an extended tour throughout the Catskill Mountains covering 118 hotels. Her star continued to rise until one night she was put on the same bill 
as the incomparable singer-dancer, civil rights activist, and French resistance fighter, Josephine Baker. We'll be talking about Josephine Baker on June 3rd. And Joyce was understandably terrified, right? She gets a case of the jitters at being on the same stage with the legendary Josephine Baker. So knowing that she was going to have to pull out all the stops, she shows up with her hair dyed silver with radiator paint, wearing a skin tight, backless, plunging V-neck, silver mermaid dress with a floor length silver mink around her shoulders. I mean, come on, right? So this brilliant PR move rockets her into international spotlight, making her arguably the first female African-American sex symbol in the nation. This is when all the big reporters of the day, including Walter Winchell, began to pour catchy nicknames on her, as we discussed in the beginning of the episode. She was the black Marilyn Monroe, the bronze blonde bombshell. She was dynamite in a dress, and everyone who saw her knew it. Her wardrobe, by the way, was mostly designed by the incredible Zelda Wynn Valdez, who also designed the Playboy Bunny costume. We're going to be talking about her on her birthday on June 28th. So in the early 50s, um, she began cutting albums, some of her most well-known singles being After You've Gone, Love for Sale, and Drunk with Love, the later two being banned from the radio due to their suggestive language. Love for Sale by Cole Porter which became Joyce's most famous work, despite being banned in Boston and other cities, is sung by a prostitute starting her evening of work in Cole Porter's play, The New Yorkers. The lyrics are fairly tawdry for the 1950s. Here's a sample of them. Love for sale, appetizing young love for sale, love that's fresh and still unspoiled, love that's only slightly soiled, love for sale. Who will buy? Who would like to sample my supply? Who's prepared to pay the price for a trip to paradise? Love for sale. Love for sale. Appetizing young love for sale. If you want to buy my wares, follow me and climb the stairs. Love for sale. So sexy for back then. I love it. In 1952, she became the first African-American singer to perform at the Hotel Algiers Aladdin Room in Miami Beach. Just perform, that is, the hotel would not let her actually stay there or even be photographed in front of the hotel. But when it was announced in all the papers that she would headline there, the KKK issued a warning that it would be in Joyce's best interest to not accept the gig. She flipped her silver mink coat in her general direction, and the KKK burned her in effigy. Joyce would also go on to become one of the first African-American singers to perform at the Washington, D.C. Casino Royale, and she headlined such legendary places as Harlem's Apollo Theater, the Coconut Grove in Hollywood, the Copacabana in Manhattan, and the Chicago Theater. In 1953, she gets a very sexy spread in Life magazine, and in 1954, Ebony Magazine names her one of the five most beautiful black women in the world, along with Lena Horne, Dorothy Dandridge, Eartha Kitt, and Hilda Sims. By this point, she's commanding upwards of $3,500 a show, which is about $34,000 a show today. So she's doing pretty well financially. But underneath it all, she's feeling unsatisfied. She was still really tethered to her Seventh-day Adventist background, and she felt guilty about working on Sundays. She hated the fact that her job made her have to socialize with gangsters and just creepy men in general. One guy actually beat her savagely in her dressing room after he followed her in there and she spurned his advances. The silver paint had become her trademark, was causing her hair to fall out. 
Dyeing your hair back then was a much more dangerous thing than it is today due to the lack of regulations surrounding cosmetic ingredients. Many actresses like Jean Harlow and Thelma Todd, who kept their hair inhumanly white or blonde, suffered permanent hair thinning and hair loss. So Joyce is feeling more and more conflicted about this sexy image that she was adopting nightly on stage, feeling it was a betrayal of her religious roots. Even her voice started to give way due to her schedule of singing up to eight shows a day. And when she saw a doctor, he told her that he could spray her throat with cocaine, which would numb her throat, but she would become addicted. Before Joyce could protest, her manager said, I don't care what you do, just make her sing. Joyce was also battling an addiction to sleeping pills as her insane schedule made her normal sleep almost impossible. By 1955, she had just had enough and she walked away from her 200,000 a year singing career. She rededicated her life to the church and decided that she would continue to put on concerts in her natural hair color and modest dress, but she would do so to raise money for food and clothes and medical care for people of color in the South. She became friends with Martin Luther King Jr., who was a big fan of her music, and uh, they worked together to to try and find ways to support civil rights within um, the religious community. She went back to her own church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, and she was like, hey, can we officially take a stand against racial discrimination? And the church refused, saying, quote, these are of earthly matters and thus of no spiritual importance. That is a great excuse. I am going to use that the next time my husband wants me to do the dishes for sure. So realizing that maybe the church wasn't the beacon of righteousness and justice that she had been brought up to believe that it was, she went back to professional entertaining in the 60s. She went to Howard University, she improved her vocal techniques, got some official training, and she started working for the New York City Opera. She would tour Europe with French and Italian opera companies and basically dedicate her life to opera for two decades. Then she switched back over to jazz uh, in the 1980s. Today, Joyce lives with a niece who has cared for her since she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. My sources today were Wikipedia, Black Past, All Music, and the Joyce Bryant website. There's also supposedly a documentary called Joyce Bryant, The Lost Diva out there. It says it was in the works back in 2011, but I could find neither hide nor hair of it. So if anyone knows how to find a copy, assuming it was actually made, I don't know, please let me know. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Joyce Bryant. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Willie O'Ree, the NHL player who broke the color barrier. See you then.